Hi, this is Bob Sorrentino from Italian Roots in Genealogy, and I'm here today with Professor Carla Simonini from Loyola University, Chicago, and we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, Italian history, uh, back to uh, when unification began and finished, and also why so many people from Southern Italy came to America. So welcome, Carla. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And this should be fun. A lot of people ask me all the time about what I know about Italian history, which isn't much. So uh, hopefully we'll get some great insight from you. Well, I should talk a little bit maybe about my specific background. I mean, I do. I got my Ph.D. in Italian studies, which was concentrated mostly on Italian literature. And then I ended up doing a dissertation that was very interdisciplinary. And I started looking at um, the Italian-American experience, especially through literature. So my, I'm not a historian in particular, but I actually use, I mean, we have to start from Italian history in order to understand the Italian immigrant experience in the United States. So that's that's been my approach uh, in my courses and in my research, looking at that periods in Italy that um, produced mass waves of immigration, what was going on there, and then what happened to those immigrants once they landed on American shores. So, uh, Yeah, and we all know kind of you know, our family, uh, mm-hmm. what their experience was, but there were a lot of similarities and, and also a lot of differences between, you know, why people came and why they settled in certain places and, yes. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first question is, what were the events that led up to the unification of Italy? We know that there were, you know, all of these regions, all these cities and all of these uh, various areas. What what brought that all together? Well, <laughs> Italian Risorgimento, which is the uh, unification movement, is extremely complicated. And I, as I tell my students, very Italian. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and here we have, you know, the revolution of seven, you know, in 1776 in the United States, blah, blah, blah. Italy, actually, they talk about having three different wars of revolution that happened in different stages. And depending on who you talk to, the actual Risorgimento movement, some date it from 1815 all the way up until after World War One. So there is different periods in which uh, Italy is talked uh, is speaks about going into its uh, becoming unified. But generally speaking, the date, the official date that Italy recognizes and celebrates as unification is 1861. So if you think 1861. That's about the time that the United States was heading into the Civil War. So Italy as a united nation, in a modern sense, has a very short history, shorter than the United States. Um, generally speaking, they talk about 1815 as being a seminal year that set off um, the unification impetus. So in 1815, that was after Napoleon was kind of, you know, his kicked out and they had this thing called the Congress of Vienna, and more or less all the nations of Europe went back to the state they were in before the Napoleonic invasion. So you had the former monarchs taking back over, and basically uh, it was a restoration to pre-Napoleonic times. But there had been some things that I guess we could say were good that came out of the Napoleonic reign. One of them was that there were some constitutional rights that were guaranteed. And when the old monarchs came in, they were going back to more of a um, authoritative position, whereas all over Italy, there had been a taste of this sense of, well, you know, we, we as people should have more rights. So there started to be movements for 
greater independence and also the idea that Italy at the time they were it was all they called them staterelli they were divided up into small states but there were really eight major ones uh, one of them was the the kingdom of Sardinia under the house of Savoy there was the kingdom of the two Sicilies in the south that was under the Bourbon rule those were the two biggest ones there were the papal states under the pope in the center and then there were a series of small they called them duchies there was one in Lombardy and Venezia uh, there was the grand duchy of Tuscany and then there were du- uh, duchies of Parma and Modena so those were the major uh, blocks there, and out of all of those, the one, the only one that was under a monarch who was from the same territory, from the Italian territories, was the Kingdom of Sardinia under the House of Savoy. So that ended up becoming sort of the um, hegemony for the Risorgimento movement. That was uh, they ended up Italy coming under uh, Piedmont. Really, was sort of the became the central focus for the Risorgimento. But within that, there were a lot of different figures and different trends. Um, people, all of, I think many people have heard of Giuseppe, uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi, who was uh, the great war hero. Um, there was Giuseppe Mazzini, who was a great thinker. He was the one who thought very uh, intellectually about the need for Italian independence. And there was also a great statesman, uh, Camillo Benso Conte di Cavour, who was the uh, basically the Secretary of State in the Kingdom of Sardinia under the House of Savoy. So these three men, who didn't necessarily even like each other <laughs> and had conflicts over time, somehow managed to put together a system which led to the 1861 unification of Italy. So Giuseppe Garibaldi was very impressed with Mazzini's thinking. Mazzini was a great thinker. He always had these grandiose plans and he set up these societies, one society in particular called the Giovane Italia, where people would get together and discuss men, I should say, men would get together and discuss uh, ideas of liberty and uh, self-rule and things like that. And it set off like certainly the spark of wanting to be under self-rule. And although he had grandiose ideas, he wasn't a very good tactician. And every single time he started to um, set off a movement, they failed. So these movements were called moti. Um, Garibaldi, on the other hand, was a great, uh, everyone seems to uh, concur, was, uh, you know, a great general. You know, he, he knew how to fight war and he had the greatest su- uh, success. And Cavour was a diplomat. So he was aware of the realities of a new state needing to make alliances. And, you know, he would sometimes make alliances that would go against what Garibaldi wanted or with, what Mazzini wanted. But again, somehow the three of them came together. And in 1861, you had Garibaldi's famous moment uh, where he he had conquered all of southern Italy and advanced up to Naples, and he really wanted a true republic, not a monarchy. But he, I think at that point, understood what Cavour was looking for and handed over all the conquered territories to King um, Victor Emmanuel II, and that is the moment we consider Italian unity in 1861. Still, it wasn't complete. There was Rome was still under the control of the Pope, and Venice was still under Austria, so... Um, there was still more work to be done, and that didn't happen until later in the decades in the 1870s when, when Rome and Venice, and there was a whole bunch of complicated things that happened uh, during that period. So 
that's kind of a quick and dirty overview of a very complicated and messy history that took place in phases over a long period of time. Um, it, it saw Giuseppe Garibaldi and Mazzini at times had, uh, you know, bounties on their heads and had to flee the countries, you know, they had to flee the Italian territories because they were wanted. Um, and the great enemy during this whole period, even though there were different alliances, it was this sense of Austria. Um, so when you talk about um, Lombardy, Venezia, they were under Austrian rule, and all those duchies were not directly under Austrian rule, but they were allied with it. So the big en enemy was that was Austria. So it was Italy, this nation sense of Italianness, trying to push out the foreign rule that was uh, Austria, either directly or indirectly. And in the south, the, the Bourbon states, which were Spanish. Spanish rule was the House of Bourbon from Spain. We'll be right back. Italian Roots and Genealogy is proudly sponsored by Your Dolce Vita and Dawn Matera, connecting people to their purpose in life and continuing their legacy. For more information, contact Dawn at www.yourdolcevita.com. Um, yeah, so I, I have to ask you if you know, uh, because my grandmother um, comes from two noble families, mm -hmm. uh, Piromalo and Caracciolo. And, uh, you know, they were obviously involved in that whole nobility thing when all this mm -hmm. was happening. And I do know, because I found it in, in a couple of books, that um, my second great-grandfather was in the Neapolitan army at the time. Mm -hmm. And his wife's father was actually from Switzerland, and he was a captain in the Swiss Guard oh. uh, assigned to the Neapolitan mm -hmm, Army, which mm -hmm. I had never had a clue. So when all of this was happening with these nobles and especially the ones that were in the various armies from these states, how did it all play out? I mean, did they just have one big fight or did they kind of just go along with the flow? Uh, it depends where, I mean, obviously the monarchs were vested in, con in maintaining control. So you did have concessions being made. So at first, when, uh, like in the House of Bourbon, they wanted, they made some concessions. They said, okay, well, we'll make a, a parliamentary monarchy. You know, we'll have a constitution in place. We'll try to appease the people that way. And that happened even in, up in uh, Savoy, the House of Savoy. And uh, sometimes it wasn't enough. And sometimes there were uprisings against that. But uh you know, it, it, it depended where you were. But certainly the monarchies were very much vested in staying in control. <laughs> <laughs> and and there were, you know, there's a very famous novel. I don't know if you've read it, El Gato Pardo, The Leopard. Um, it's set uh, down in, uh, in Sicily. You know, it was written in the early 20th century, but the author... Um, Lampadusa was looking at his own family history and how he descended from nobility in Sicily, you know, loyal to the House of Bourbon. And while this was happening, how there was sort of a pragmatic positioning of yourself so that you can still come out 
well, despite what's going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's a famous, famous uh, quote from that, in order for things to remain the same, everything must change. <laughs> so th- it's, it tracks the story of a, you know, a young man who is of uh, aristocratic descent actually joining forces first with Garibaldi and later with the new government and how to, uh, okay, you know, this is happening. Let's make sure we position ourselves so we come out on top, regardless of who's in charge sort of thing. So you do hear stories like that throughout this history. Yeah, that's and that's really interesting. I, you know, I, I often wondered why my grandmother came to this country because there are no pure malos other than one that I mm-hmm. found in in the United States. And as it turned out, um, you know, of, of course, she was a girl, uh, and her father wasn't in the direct line, so you know, he he's not titled or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found that. Uh, her aunt came to the United States in 1905. And what I recently found out from, um, you know, a fourth cousin of mine that we discovered each other after many, many years of our families knowing each other, mm-hmm. um, that her great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, uh, was fairly well off in Italy. And he came to America and started um, a shoe factory. Oh, yeah, that's... <laughs> and and yeah. so so... You know, you know, piecing things together, I said, well, that must be why my grandmother came, even though her family was well off. My my um, my grandfather, while he wasn't noble, but, you know, they had they were fairly well off. They were lawyers and pharmacists. And so they weren't you know, they weren't poor. Um, But I'm only guessing here is that my grandmother's aunt must have said, come to America there'll be opportunity here for, for your husband and everything. And, mm-hmm. and that's how we wound up here. So from my father's family, three of my uh, uh, oldest aunts and uncles were born in Italy and my father and, and, the, and one of the younger girls were born here. But so that kind of segues into, I've heard that, uh, and from what I've read, that the North kind of took over the South and all of this, that the South was relatively, I wouldn't say wealthy, but they were the breadbasket of Italy and they were doing fairly well until unification. So is that true? Well, that's very controversial right now in Italy. There's actually a movement called neo-Bourbonism. Like, so these people that are hearkening back to the reign of the Bourbons is sort of like uh, some criticize it. They say it's revisionist history. You're looking back and uh, rewriting things uh, because there's there was certainly... La questione meridionale, which became a, t- a, cur- a, t- a term coined after um, Italian unification. It literally means the southern question. So, yeah, there were differences between the north and the south. Um, in general, up north, especially uh, in under Austria, but also in the, the reign of Savoy there, there was greater industrialization. The only, like the greatest for an example, the railroad, uh, the, the biggest expanse of railroad was up in that area there. Um, also, they were more closely allied with uh, European trends in political thought and governance, uh, again, because of the influence of Austria and just geographically being uh, closer up there, which is not to say that the South didn't have, uh, you know, a functioning economy, whatnot. One of the big things that happened after unification is 
they needed to create Italy. In fact, there's uh, D'Azeglio, who's one of the great uh, Italian statesmen. He's, uh, the quote is something along the lines of, well, now that we've made Italy, we must have to make the Italians. So like, who are we as a people? So now we're a geographic entity. Who are we? Because there were cultural differences. There were linguistic differences. So you had this process of trying to figure out who we are as a united nation. To give you an example with linguistically, uh, Tuscan was chosen as the dialect that was going to be the official language. At the time of unification, only 5% of the people who were considered now Italians actually spoke Tuscan as their primary language. So you had this huge linguistic divide. Uh, the other problem was with literacy. Uh, Italy had a high illiteracy rate, much much higher than any other the nations in uh, in Europe, and it was particularly bad in the South. Under the Bourbon rule, the peasants didn't have access to schooling, so Italy as a whole had an illiteracy rate of about seventy to seventy five percent of the people could not read and write, and in the South it was as high as between eighty and ninety percent. So you had a, so they had this disparity between North and South in terms of language, in terms of literacy. Um, and so the other thing was like, okay, we have to get united and we have to do it quickly. There had been some proposals of creating more like a federalist state, which probably in retrospect might've been a better idea. Something like we have in the United States, where you have different federal governments that could have tended to the specific needs of the regions, but for efficiency regions, the new government opted for a strong central state. It was faster. It was easier. So where where was the best uh, equipped place to do that? It came out of the Piedmont region. So what happened was what they call a Piedmontization of the entire newly united Italy, because that was the place that had the civic, judicial systems best in place. They took the Piedmont model and they imposed it on all of Italy, which was not as good a fit for part of southern Italy. So that, that was part of it. They, it was an, a decision based on efficiency, but it had ramifications. And there was something, also they had to pay off the war debt. So there were, and where did they get the money from? This is one thing that the southern, the south brings up all the time. The Bourbons had rich coffers down in the south. And it's, it is true that some of that money was taken to pay off the debt. But the, you know, the counter argument is that, well, we're a newly united nation. We need to draw our resources from where they come. And we, this is for the benefit of all to get the, the war debt paid down. So all those things happened. The, and then a few things happened that were particularly damaging to the south. Agriculture. Italy was mostly an agricultural country, north and south. The difference in the south under the Bourbon rule was that they had, um, they called them the latifondi. So the system of agriculture in the south was much more backwards than it was in the north. The latifondi were large, generally absentee landowners, and they lived off the toil of the peasants. And they didn't have any incentive to invest back in the land. As long as they had peasants that they could exploit and would work for them, all they did was have them work and they took whatever fruits of their labor that they could uh, manage. So that system broke down. Um, and the new government also needed armed forces. And again, it needed money to invest in agriculture, you know, and not in agriculture, but in infrastructure. So what do they do? They have a oblig obligatory military service for young men and a tax on what they called it the machinato, or it was called the bread tax. These were two especially 
hated, <laughs> really detested taxes because they disproportionately hurt the people in the South. So under the Bourbon Rule, uh, military service was optional. You know, if you wanted to become a soldier, you went and did it. Um, it. Now, all of a sudden, these people are being told that their young men have to do, it was a lot, and it was like five years military service, and they were sent to some other part of Italy, which would have been like going to the moon for some of these families. And you took your young, able-bodied men from the family that could have been workers helping support the family are suddenly being taken by this government someplace strange where you don't know why. The other thing, the tax on the bread in the South, when you relied mostly on bread and pasta as your main means of food, that that was extremely oppressive. Suddenly you're being taxed on your very nourishment. So <laughs> this led to some disappointment. The other thing is that Garibaldi came down there as a populist figure, and they thought that you know he had great support when he first came down. He came down with this Spedizione dei Mille. He take, took a thousand men. This is famous, famous story in Italian history. Garibaldi marched down into uh, Sicily with only a thousand volunteers and took down this great Bourbon army, you know, and 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 went all the way, marched all the way up to, to Naples. And he was met with great fanfare because they thought, this is going to get better for us peasants. This is great. And then instead he hands it over to the monarch and they find themselves here, you know, shortly thereafter in conditions which they felt were worse than they were in before. So there was resentment on, on the population, on the peasant population. And this led to the called the period of the brigantaggio or brigands or bandits. And uh, that was a, a period they... It went on, it, there are vestiges of this that still exist to this day, but there was a period of basically, we would call it almost like guerrilla warfare, like uprisings against uh, the, what was going on locally. And who were these brigands? They were a combination. Some of them were just were like bandits, you know, bad guys that had been out there. There had always been road bandits and things like that. Some of them were um, people who were still loyal to the Bourbons that had gone in exile. Some of them were... Um, they're former soldiers from the Bourbon Army who didn't have a, a job anymore. Nobody, you know, they weren't, they were displaced. Um, some of them were small property owners who felt like they were on the short end. Some of them were the peasants that didn't have anything. Some of them were the draft dodgers, these guys who didn't want to go off and, uh, and serve in this army. And it got so, and then they were supported. The, the Bourbons in exile, they thought, hey, this is great. Let's keep this. We'd like to get back in power. This is a way if we can spread discord. And also the... Uh, the papal states were known to have uh, financially and in other means supported them because they too were vested in maintaining their own power. So you had a period there, good four or five years where this these uprisings were going on and the new newly formed Italian state didn't know what to do about it. So what did they do? They 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 repressed them with very violent uh, means and without much due process. I mean, they literally went down and held executions. They were known for going into towns that might have been harboring bandits and even killing women and children. It was so the repression on the part of the government in attempts to control the South, that's it, um, resulted in further worsening of the condition and uh, discord amongst the population. And this led also to prejudice. There was this idea, well, there must be something wrong with these Southern people. They must be inherently criminal and this and that. And, uh, you know, you, vestiges of this are still heard in Italian society to this day, this this qu Southern question and what, what happened there. So that, that's some of the historical pieces that went into that.
Yeah, and I, I find that fascinating, um, especially about you know the 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 surf part and all of that. Because again, my my grandmother's specifically her mother's family, but also her father's family. Um, I know that uh, my third great grandfather, they he was the Count of Montebello, but he lived in Naples. Oh sure, that's very typical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. you know you didn't and, you didn't see the, the the signore. He came in when it was time to collect the money exactly. or, or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. So and like the neo Bourbons, they say, well, the system did function. You know, there was you know they talk about maybe there was less uh, hunger. You know, h- hunger was a huge factor in uh, in spurring the emigration that people simply quite literally did not have enough to eat. So the thought is, well, they had to have had enough to eat somehow under this system of absentee landlords, not that it was perfect. So when you hear about the neo-Bourbonism, these are the types of things they bring up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, my mom's family, they're from Torito and Bari and um, they actually, my, when my grandparents came in 1914, they, they came because my grandfather had served in the war in Libya and mm -hmm. world war one was, on the horizon, and my grandmother mm-hmm. said, "You're not going to fight in another war." So they came to America, but they left their oldest son behind with his mm-hmm. grandparents, and he mm-hmm. didn't come until after World War II with his whole family. And so the stories I got from them are exactly what you're saying. You know, in the 20s and 30s, you know, very very poor. However, my great grandfather, uh, and this is a funny story, he owned a cow. And, well, yeah, right. and he would that was go, a big deal. Yeah. yeah, and he would go yeah. door to door with the cow with my yeah. uncle, mm-hmm. and that you know he that was the milk delivery system in Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I talk to this about my students too. Like um, the class distinctions were um, much more finely drawn in Italy than anything we've ever experienced in the United States. So you, yeah, they say the peasant class, but even within the peasant class, you know, the fact that he owned a cow would have set him, you know, would apart from somebody who owned, you know, nothing, or, you know, you might've owned a small plot of land or you would have been a, you know, piccolo terriero. So there were all these little distinctions that had to do with property, property and land owning was a, a means of distinguishing yourself socially uh, in in Italian society at that time, and that's why I think Italians were um, of all backgrounds. Home ownership, owning something here, was a major means of making it. You know, this was a mark of having achieved something that you owned something. You had a piece of land, a home of your own. Yeah, and that's what my my cousin actually told me that they um, they owned a home. It was two rooms. Yep. Uh, it was a bedroom and then, you know, the everything else room, the kids room, the kitchen, yep. the dining room, the living room, everything else with the fireplace with the pot hanging over it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, this is in the 30s and 40s. Uh, but she even said that, that, you know, we were better off than most because we mm-hmm. actually had a home. You owned your own home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. and uh, but to your point about the classes, my cousin uh, had interviewed his father in Bares before my, my uncle died. And in that interview, uh, my uncle wanted to marry who, a woman who eventually became my aunt. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was a rung above him. Yes. And even that, though that they owned a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and even though he, you know, they owned the home and they had yeah. the cow and everything, whatever her parents had was a little bit more. So, yeah. But, 
He went to he went in the army and came back, and eventually they allowed him to get married. Otherwise, my yeah. cousins wouldn't be here. Um. <laughs> you hear about that too in my family and my grandmother's generation too. There was this sense of uh, they knew what your status had been in the old country, and that could affect your yes. your marital choices here. My grandfather on my father's side, my Tuscan side, the Simoninis. Their family was considered benestante. They were well off. Even in the States, he was a banker and whatnot. And uh, the story is he dated my grandmother for like years, years. And he was in his 40s when he finally married her. And it was only after his parents passed away. So there is this sense that he had to wait until they weren't alive anymore so that he could marry a woman who was ostensibly, you know, beneath him in stature, even though her family had come from a small landowner landowning uh, background as well. But it, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my, my dad's father, he was actually in a seminary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the story I always heard growing up, although I didn't know my grandfather, he passed away before I was born. But the story that they used to tell was that he would say that my grandmother would come past and flirt with him. Mm-hmm. And that's why he left. But then I found out the real story was her carriage, her fancy carriage broke down in front of the seminary and he was outside waiting or just hanging out, whatever. Yeah. He helped them to fix the carriage. They gave him a ride someplace and the rest is history. <laughs> um, so uh, with all of that, that seems to be the, the whole reason that you had these mass migrations out of specifically the South uh, to the U.S. and to, to um, other countries. Yeah, there were different waves of emigration, if we're talking about the leaving there. So, I mean, like the first group, when these moti I was talking about for these uprisings towards Italian independence started taking place in 1848, there was one where they actually established a republic in Rome, which was later suppressed. And that's when Garibaldi and others went into exile. But so you have your first group of immigrants coming to the United States as political exiles uh, in this period, because they were they were the ones who were pushing for Italian unification, and they were you know they, like I said they had bounties on their heads in Italy. So you still the, the earliest groups you see in the United States. I mean, obviously there were Italians in the United States all the way back to its founding, even colonial times. But the first group you see coming over was that uh, a lot of these political. Uh, escapees, people who were looking asylum there. They tended to be more from the North, tended to be better educated. Obviously, they were politically engaged. After that, when you see the post-Risorgimento era, that's when you started to have these conditions worsening in the South and you start seeing mass migration. The first destination that they went to was South America before you saw them coming to the United States. And that's why to this day, Argentina has a, a immense population that derives uh, from Italian immigration during the uh, the 19th century there. So there would be uh, Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil also. Then around 1880, you start to see more coming in toward to the United States. And usually between 1880, 1920, really up until 1924, when they, the Johnson-Reed bill was passed that really slammed the door shut on (laughs) immigration. That's when you see the great waves coming from Italy to the United States. And in that period, about, again, the statistics vary, but it seems to be roughly between 75 and 85, 80% of those people came from the southern, the regions south, uh, east and south of Rome. But there were Italians from all over the peninsula that came here. Um, Again, you know, statistics can be misleading. The majority you could say were from the South and the majority you could say were from the more humble classes, but not all of them, just like your own family story shows. So, um, so 
my my last question is about about these regions. You know, uh, you know, basically Sicily, and uh, mm-hmm. we know Puglia. A lot of people came from there and Campania. Um, when they came to the United States, did they come to places that were either they they thought were maybe similar to where they came from in Italy? Did they go to places because the uh, industry was similar to what they may have done in Italy? Or did they just come as people started coming and they said, hey, we live in Corona, Queens, like my family, come here because it's nice? Yeah. Well, all of the above. (laughs) (laughs) All of the above. It depends. Uh, One figure that I always tell my students that they're surprised about is that, uh, you know, the, the mythology is, oh, you know, they left for the new world looking for a better life and, you know. Yes and no. The Italians had, they were known as birds of passage, more so than any other immigrant group. Uh, And that was because they, at least originally, men would come over by themselves more often than than bring their families. And the idea was to work, make money, and go back to Italy and buy land. So even though the Italians were represented in one of the greatest numbers Numerically, during the great wave of 1880 to 1920, they also had the highest repatriation rate. So you had many of them that didn't stay. So in the first, uh, in the beginning parts, especially, you'd have single men that would come over. And they were generally brought over by what was called the padrone system. And this was um, an intermediary who uh, worked for companies like railroads or mines or construction sites or wherever they needed able-bodied workers. And the padroni would be sort of a middleman. They would oftentimes put up the money for the person's travel over to the United States and then set them up in work camps and help them find their way. Now, the padroni system has gotten a lot of bad press because there were, there were widespread abuses in it to the point where it was abolished to, uh, when Immigrants would come over, they'd have to deny that they had an existing work contract, which seems a little counterintuitive, but it was because of uh, these people were being brought in, they couldn't pay off the debt for the journey, and then they were indebted to the company store that they were forced to, uh, to, to buy all their goods from. So there was definitely some abuses. And on the other hand, it did function in a certain extent in allowing people who wouldn't have otherwise had the means to get over here to get over. And, uh, and there were some, quote unquote, good padroni. So those were the men that would come over generally for manual labor jobs. And um, no, it wasn't exactly the same thing they did in Italy, but they were manual laborers in Italy, too. They would have been the braccianti, the people who worked the land. So it wasn't too far to go from, you know, a pick and axe on the fields to one in a construction site digging or on a railroad or in a coal mine or something like that. Later, you had them come over, you know, with um, with their wives and they would begin to settle. There were some people that did look to regions of Italy that were like their own. There's a famous story. Uh, Mari Tomasi is an author from Vermont who published some works in the 1940s that talked about the Barry Vermont uh, stoneworkers. And uh, they came over from the Piedmont region of Italy. And if you look side by side at a picture of the region in Italy they came from in Piedmont and what Barry Vermont looks like, very, very similar geographically. So they certainly found an area that was uh, comfortable for them in that area. And then they had the skills as stonecutters and uh, carvers, sculptors, and things like that. 
Um, so it, it and then there also was chain migration that was very popular. So after these initial men came over and started working, some of them decided to stay. They would call for their wives if they had them. Oftentimes, if they were single men, they'd go back to Italy and find a wife, <laughs> and then bring the wife back. And so once you had communities established, you had this chain migration. They would support and help each other, and that's when the the system of godparentage became even more important in the United States than it was in Italy. So we call them the comari com. Party. These were your your godparents. Your they weren't relatives by blood necessarily, but you would pick someone to baptize your child who would extend your sphere of influence. Usually, you you would want somebody who was maybe a little higher social status than you or whatnot. And uh, there was a reciprocal obligation and and uh, respect between a godparent and a godchild. In the United States, that became even more important. So, what would have been more like a family circle? In Italy, became more a a um, town circle. So your your godparentage extended. That's why we talk about my paisani here in the United States. It was your paisani were your people, uh, in the sense of the village that you had a connection to in Italy that you recreated uh, those bonds in the United States. So yeah, there's whole communities. I know Rosetto Rosetto. Um, Pennsylvania, very, very famous settlement, which has been studied for the Rosetto effect, how people lived longer there and had low, uh, low heart disease. They all came from the same town in Puglia. Um, and like you said, in different areas, you find people that uh, you find these little societies, you know, the, the Bagnoli society or the well, Pico society in different places. And these are the people from the same town that came over and settled in a different area. And uh, yeah, so a little of all of that happened, a little of all of that. Uh, yeah, and when, and when my uncle finally came, he was he they were going to come with the whole family, uh, and I think uh, I think there's there's seven, uh, but one of my cousins, one of the one of my female cousins, had a liver disease, mm. and she got sick, and she 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 couldn't they couldn't leave, and um, I guess what happened was they didn't have the money to come over, but anyway, one of the padrones came over. Mm-hmm. And they they couldn't come to the U.S. first. They had to go to Canada uh, mm-hmm. right after the war. They had to go. He had to go to Canada. They spent about five yeah, well, years there. Yeah, uh, after 1924, it was very hard to get into yeah. the United States, and, and you do see people going through Canada first. Yeah. Right, and even though his whole family was here. Yeah, and his brothers, he had five brothers, and they all fought in World War II. He still had to go to Canada first, mm-hmm. and um, but he he came over and. Uh, he was at sea for like 40 days, some crazy thing. When he got to Canada, his visa had gone, you know, wasn't good anymore, wasn't valid anymore. So they had to check them all out. Uh, and he was working on a mushroom farm. Oh. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, imagine that. That's the first. I haven't heard about <laughs> Italian workers on mushroom farms yeah. before. So. Uh, so eventually he sent for his eldest daughter. She came over and she was miserable. She was in a boarding home. With all men, even though her father was there, but she was in a boarding home with all men. And very, very typical living situation, by the way, for the early immigrants, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, what happened was, and you'll love this story, um, because my, my mother's sister and her husband went up to visit my uncle and, his, and my cousin uh, in, in Toronto, or somewhere in Canada, or I guess close, to, I guess I think it was very close to the border. In any event... Um, my cousin was 18. She was miserable. She was very unhappy. And, um, my uncle said, you can't stay here. Come with us. So 
they rigged up the backseat of the car so she could get underneath and they wouldn't see her as she drove across the border. <laughs> <laughs> what year was that? This you know was probably about 49 or 50. Okay. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and, and so, but, so eventually she yeah. met, she met her future husband here, but she couldn't get married. Oh. So she, they had her sneak her back to Canada <laughs> so she could become legal and come back and, and actually they got married there and then they eventually came back. But wow. Um, yeah. My uncle was, um, when they brought her back, they went back with my, my uncle and my aunt and my youngest cousin from that family and um, my cousin and her husband-to-be, and they had a teacher to say, when they asked her, where are you from, you know, they had a teacher to say New York without trying to have a real Italian accent. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but she eventually went, came yeah. back, and everything was was great. Yeah. Um, well, this has been absolutely fascinating. I love this. This is one of the best ones I did. I enjoyed so much getting the history, and I know so many people have asked me about it, uh, and, and I know we've only touched the surface. But for anyone who wants to learn more, what books or what would you recommend that they, they look at to, to try and oh. get more of a background? I think the best book that you can read is the one I was talking about before, The Leopard by uh, Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa. I mean, that really uh, brings to light the struggle of uh, this, uh, this aristocratic family going through the transition from being under the Bourbon rule uh, through the Risorgimento and how what, what happens to them across the generations there. It's a, a very, very powerful novel. I definitely recommend that. Um, there are a lot of just simple websites out there you can be. I mean, Italian, the Risorgimento is very complicated. I, I mean, I really, I hope I did, you know, well enough just kind of summarizing some of the high points. But it was a long, drawn-out movement that had a lot of different players in it. Um, so, yeah, look up things on those three figures, I'd say. Mazzini, Garibaldi, and Cavour, I think. If you look up a little bit about those three guys, you'll have more of a sense of what happened uh, in there. So, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you again. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>